Welcome to cameras or whatever. Hey. We still haven't made our introductions any good, but uh, <laughs> but we're making up for today by having our, our, our best special guest yet. Don't tell the other guests that. <laughs> uh, we've got Kirk Maston. I'm, I'm of, on the inner circle. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Kirk is the uh, inventor and, and the genius behind uh, Maston Labs, which we've we've talked about here before and we use and love. It's a Lightroom filter that preset preset that works magic. Um, it's really nice. It's let's 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 give you a second to talk about it, Kirk. What, what's your elevator pitch on what your filters do? Your presets it's film do? emulation or whatever. No, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> I like the whatever part. <laughs> it's the show. Um, it's the show. Yes. <laughs> um, so basically, in a nutshell, I've I've started from the ground up remaking uh, film emulation presets for both Lightroom and Adobe Camera Raw uh, using my own Fuji Frontier that I bought for myself to keep my film costs low. Wow. And Which we are incredibly jealous of. It's, mm-hmm. it, I mean, I love that you're, whenever we look at your Facebook family snapshots, they just have the most perfect color because they're film and adjusted by you, um, you know, and, and you understand color. And uh, yeah, it's, you've really got a wonderful setup. I, lo- I love the way your, all your work comes yeah. out. Yeah. Everyone should buy a Frontier. Just put it in. Yeah, no big deal. It's like 500 pounds. Takes like four people to move. And and if it breaks, you can't get another one. Um, Well, and you do so many things. I mean, so yeah, like this is kind of what uh, you've been getting some maybe internet fame for now because uh, your 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 presets have taken off. But you you're also a very accomplished wedding photographer. Um, you, you're, I mean, you're an excellent photographer. We, we, we love your work just, uh, as it is. You have a, you have an account on Stocksy. I'm not sure if you've uploaded anything, but you're, you hang out there, right? Yeah. I think Stocksy is amazing. Um, I've been doing stock photography, I mean, since 2008, I think, or 2007. Um, and the industry has changed a lot. I think mostly for the worse, for Mm -hmm. sure. And then when I saw um, Stocksy, I was really excited because it seems equitable. Like it's it's really you're like really in the photographer's corner rather than uh, I don't know rather than taking advantage. That's yeah. what it feels like, honestly. Like That's a lot of hope. other places. That's the hope. We had um, a um, uh, a meeting the other day at Stocksy that was like you know kind of making decisions about a coming year and realized that everybody sitting in the meeting has active photographer accounts. Like everybody is yeah. really part of the community. It's not, um, yes. It, uh, yes. like we all, we're all invested in it and it's been really great, but yes, it, it's, it's not some suits going like, Oh, creative. Like what it's like this creative <laughs> is like the substance. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's this, like, it's like, Oh, you've got rice, beans, flour, and photos, you know, like it's just <laughs> like this thing. Yeah. Um, Stocks it's, is, it's not a commodity. It's, it's something else. And I think that it's one hard, of the, man. yeah, exactly. And I think that that's the, the, the more exciting part about working with Stocksy is that we hold ourselves to a higher standard as individuals. So, you know, it's, it's not like, a, it's a, awesome. yeah, it's not like a, like a, like you say, like a bunch of suits telling us like, Hey guys, we need you to, to do more handshakes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. You guys are like the rage against machine of stock photography. It's great. <laughs> wow, You're not going to take any analogy. crap. I'll take that. <laughs> Okay, well, now that we're done patting each other on the backs, uh, yes. what, what great work you're, that we you're do. All, you're all awesome. Yeah. Um, we're so great. 
<laughs> I wanted to, uh, the, the, the obvious thing to ask Kirk about is like what he's known for, but I want to talk about, I've heard you in some other interviews and you have a lot of really interesting opinions on photography as a whole. So like someday let's hang out and just talk nothing but filters and film. But, um, when sure. I threw the idea out there to have a conversation today, one, th- one of the suggestions you had was about the idea of pre planning shoots. And uh, kind of being prepared yes. for when you show up. And I thought this this show is actually a great uh, analogy for that because I did absolutely zero preparation today. <laughs> um, and, uh, and oh man, so you know, production of, of anything you make can can maybe it'll show. Maybe maybe everyone can tell. But um, I, since you um, kind of brought it up, like yeah. I was wondering, like where you're coming from with it, what how you think about pre production. Well, let me give you kind of my broad 10,000 foot level view of photography and also my place in it. So I love photography. I've done it like my whole life and, and I've always like followed little passions that I've had and explored them photographically. Um, but I also realized that I am not going to be ever a known famous photographer. Like, um, and I'm fine with that. I'm not Richard Avedon or anything. And I, and I never will be. And that's totally cool. Um, because I'm not ready to sacrifice that much. So something to think about. I have kids, family, mm-hmm. other things in my life besides photography. And so I've kind of excluded myself probably forever from that realm of like well-known forever photographer. And that's totally cool. Mm-hmm. Because I use photography instead and I've always used it as a way to explore as much as I can while I'm alive on this planet as a, you know, as a human being (laughs) experiencing being a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, and throughout my life, it's been like this carte blanche to walk into other people's lives. Like usually at the most interesting point of their life or something that they're really good at, or like some turning point and be given like all access to, record this and try to understand it through photography. So for me, that's like, that's what it's all about. I like, I like the Um, idea of even like photography as an excuse to, to live a more interesting life. It's almost like buying a GoPro so that you start snowboarding or, uh, you know, I, like, I don't really like hiking, but I'll go to the mountains because I can take photos. Like it's an excuse to get outdoors Mm -hmm. or, uh, or like you say to, to, you know, be involved with, uh, people's lives that you like, it's an excuse to start a conversation. Totally. I mean, I, I, I thought of it like when I was a photojournalist, it was like, how lucky am I to live hundreds of lives, thousands of lives, because I get to step into other people's lives and get up close and experience what they're doing and then leave that situation and go back to my own life, like kind of just dip in and out. And you kind of, you're kind of cheating life in a way, you know, you're, you know, most people, you, you have like a track that you're on, you know, you make choices, whatever, and and you live your life and you shape yourself. But as a photographer, you get to kind of just jump in for a second to all these different things and, um, and learn from them and, and, and yet keep your own path. So that brings me to pre-planning. Um, I think that what is lacking in photography right now is that we have an overabundance of technique and skill, but a huge lack of commitment and sacrifice and obsession. Like, mm-hmm. for example, like I'm seeing people do like amazing, amazing, like one-off portraits or, or whatever, or 
I don't know, like amazing photos of architecture or fashion or anything. And that's great. I mean, it's, it solves like a, a need, a commerce need for photography. Like you need images to sell a product. Um, but what I feel is lacking and maybe I'm an old fogey and I, and it's coming from photojournalism, but I think like exploring like the human condition or, or following an obsession and making a collection of images out of that is like, at least for me, that's where I'm at and where I want to go with the rest of my career as a photographer. So I'll give you some examples. Um, I went to Germany. Did I, I think I already told, told you this Tyler or maybe in person, but mm -hmm. Um, I went to Germany to follow up on a rumor of a story that I had been trying to figure out for about six years of these people that had decided to live like Native Americans um, oh, yeah. almost 200 years ago. So they, they were influenced by this guy named Karl May, his writings. Uh, he wrote about the West and about this Indian like chief named Winnetou and his sidekick <laughs> Shatterhand, who was this German guy. Anyway... Um, I was at the Eddie Adams workshop when I was a young man and one of the teachers there was like, yeah, I was shooting for, uh, of course, I was shooting for Rolling Stone in Germany and I heard about these people who live like Native Americans and he knew that I was really into shooting Native American stuff in the Southwest and he was like, you really should, you know, check this out. So for the next like six years, this is, pre this is all about planning and pre-planning. Mm -hmm. I conceptualized like what this story is about, what does it mean? how does it relate to identity? Are these people like, do they really believe they're Indians? Are they faking it? You know, what's going on? And then also trying to find like my first contact in the country that even knew about these people living this way. Cause it's not out in the open and through six years of pre-planning and that this is really extreme. Mm -hmm. Um, I have found enough information like doing my own research and then luckily finding, finding out that my wife's friend is a German filmmaker who had connections in the area that I had enough to start the project. So I went over there on my own dime with my friend uh, Guido, who's the German filmmaker guy. And we like in the matter of 14 days hammered out a huge project. Um, and it was all because of the pre-planning that we did. And, and a lot of that pre-planning was even just conceptualizing the story, like what the hell's going on? Um, mm -hmm. So that when we got there, we would know what kind of questions to ask, what kind of access we needed, which direction to go um, to have a story. So it's by no means complete, but the pre-planning is what enabled us to go and shoot this like really tight story that I felt was really interesting, at least to me. I mean, I was obsessed about it. You know what? I think that um, taps into two things, two, two levels of pre-planning that I'm personally bad at both of them, <laughs> which is like one is the taking the long view. And the other is mm -hmm. just arranging for a shoot, right? Making sure yes. you're ready to yes. do a shoot. And I, I mm -hmm. think that's all I had been thinking about when you, when you brought yes. the topic up is like making sure your bag's packed correctly and you've sent out call sheets and you have conceptualized this shoot. But what the idea of like looking at a project as a multi-year project, uh, that's, that's the thing I fail at and am I think more about doing better at whereas like pre-planning on an individual shoot basis. I'm like, uh, uh, Anya will take care of that or, um, <laughs> yeah, totally. But, uh, yeah, like photographer say, uh, I'll always talk about filmmakers whenever you let me, but, uh, filmmakers will have to deal with things on this kind of scale. You can't make a movie and uh, well, you could make a movie in a week, but most people don't. Um, there's, yeah. you know, there's 10 levels of, of preparation. And if you want to, 
do photography as storytelling. Um, it yeah. takes, it takes that time commitment that you're talking about. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's, it's about commitment and, and it's so hard. I think the hardest thing as a photographer is once you get your technical chops is like looking deep inside and being like, what do I give a shit and, you know, shit about enough to actually <laughs> yeah. commit yeah. to, to commit some time to, I mean, like when I was a younger photojournalist, it would be like, what's going to make me famous? okay, I got to go to Iraq or like, I got to go do war photography because anything less than that is like wimpy and no one cares. Or I've got to go to LA and like get in with a drug gang, you know, situation and like get some real edgy stuff. And then I, I kept going, you know what? I, I know all that stuff exists and it's interesting, but it's not personally something I'm fascinated by. So I would go much slower and just try to like find something I actually truly cared about because if I was going to spend some of the time I have alive on this planet, I wanted to go towards something that I really cared about. And right. those projects tended to be really odd um, or not maybe even on the surface boring, but to me were interesting. Well, and I suspect the photographers you're competing with. So the, the, the kid that grew up six blocks away from the drug gang uh, and is like desperate to tell this story or the, the, the dude that, or the girl that just is um, can't stay away from uh, war-torn countries because it's fascinating to her. Like the, yeah. the people you're competing with are passionately like the, the people that are winning the awards for it. They can't help but shoot this. Like yeah, it like is they what they to. are the most interested in, and they would be shooting it whether or not anybody was going to publish it. And yes, it's about finding that thing for yourself. Like not sh not chasing the um, what you saw in the award last year, but like what could you feel that passionate about? If you yeah. don't already, which I haven't found that yeah. thing for myself. So it's a, it, that just finding it's a challenge on its own. But, um, yeah, I think that sometimes coming from a stock perspective, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to, to actually find whatever that is, mm -hmm. you know, especially if you're a generalist, you know, cause I think that most people just end up getting into a pace where they're just trying to make money. And so they, yeah. you know, they, they conceive of, of whatever is like most accessible or easiest yeah. to do. What's, and, yeah. What's and, at the top of the oh, sales to charts. Totally. Yeah. And that's, and that, oh yeah, yeah. No, that's a big problem yeah. with why photography uh, suffers in general. It's just because I think that in, 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 regardless if it's stock or anything else, I think that people are just, you know, punching the clock in a lot of, in a lot of cases mm -hmm. and they're not, oh, it's, man, not, it's, it's not about passion. It's about just getting through the day. If, if, if you're going to punch the clock, man, go into finance. Totally. You know, like, <laughs> like don't even like you're, you're, you're dumb to go into photography in any shape or form. If it's just about money. I mean, like there's so much easier ways to make money. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, Absolutely. but on the other hand, you're super smart if you find ways to turn what you're already obsessed about into money. Oh, so, totally. And that's the difference, right? Like, Yeah. My, my best selling stock was all from like leftovers or my best shots from personal work. Mm -hmm. Like stock was amazing because it was like, that's where I could put all of my experiments or like personal work that, you know, hadn't gone into a book or wasn't done yet or whatever. Like mm -hmm. it could be making money. Um, so well, yeah, and I have like, yeah. And you could also just, you know, you can get really deep into your personal obsessions and, and, and also have those reflect in a more useful way to the general human condition. 
you know, like uh, somebody I mm. think of that that is very committed to her craft and her art is uh, one of our members, Kat McBride, who... Um, yes. Yeah, she, she she just, you know, she's relentless. She she makes a picture every day. And, you know, every and they all have, you know, uh, this, you know, singular passion and vision in it. And that she, she's not, she doesn't seem like she's concerned so much about like, you know, whether or not that particular photo will make money or whether or not like anybody will like it. It's all just coming straight from her. And it, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's invigorating for other artists, I believe to see, to see that because it's, it's rare these days to see totally. something quite like that. I mean, it's like, it's like you could, you could look at the charts and be like, okay, business people against a white background, shaking hands, like with a laptop, mm -hmm. like I'm going to go shoot that. Well, the problem is, is that there's people who just do that, who are going to just kick your ass mm -hmm. on those stock photos, which are, yeah, they're in demand, but you know, they're set up for it. Well, they've um, also scientifically evaluated like what it is that makes that photo sell. You yeah. know, so then well, there's, totally. there's, there's stock photo factories. I mean, not in an insulting way, but in a way that there are groups of, of people that are working as a, um, in a factory model where there's one person assigned to each task, a unit and mm -hmm. yeah. And they're, tr they're churning yes. it out quickly. And you know what? The, 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 there's not very many of them, but the ones that are doing it well are making great money. Like mm -hmm. there, it, it, it is a way to make a lot of money, but I'm sure they, I don't know. They're, they're, that is not a, um, a passion project or yeah. probably not creatively reward yeah. rewarding um even if well financially i, is, I find that that you know they run out of subjects and they start to just redo everything over and over and over again with like slight variations hoping that that slight variation is going to be the magic ticket to their next success yes instead of yeah, like re-envisioning the whole thing altogether which is what photographers would do you know, yeah. a photographer gets bored and they say, okay, I, you know, let's just back up. An artist gets bored and says, you know, like, this is crap. I need to scrap this whole thing, re-envision everything about what I'm doing and start over again. And then build it up into something that, that actually matters until I get sick of that and move on to the next thing again. You know, uh, yeah. these, I think that looking at it from a point of commerce is just, it's always going to, you know, dull your, your vision, your artistic vision. And just make it yeah. something that's more of a, you know, a product. And, you know, the, the, the irony in there is that, you know, if you look at a lot of, you know, I, I've occasionally I'll just go on like for, Forbes and just look at the top 10 businesses or whatever, and then go to the website and see what it is that they're, you know, what images they're using to, to sell their company. Mm -hmm. And almost all the time it's, it's like really just like off the cuff, natural looking stuff. It's never like business guys shaking hands or any of the, the weird yeah. stock that you see. Um, it's all really just yep. natural, you know, like lifestyle and stuff like that. And, and I think that that's what, what they really want. And so I, I really question why it is that, that so many people look at this as like this, this odd commodity that needs to be turned out in that method, you know? know. Yeah. It hurts my brain sometimes. And <laughs> well, but like, uh, how would you, okay. So the, we're talking about all the things that are, can make you potentially miserable as a photographer, but let's, <laughs> let's sure. turn this to the positive. <laughs> sure, sure. There's many things. Yeah. How, <laughs> how do you, first of all, how do you find that thing? 
um, if you don't feel like you already have one currently, like if something hasn't yeah. jumped out at you as being obvious, but then also how do you sustain it? This might even be the, like, just as important of a question. How do you do it while you probably work another full-time job and mm-hmm. this may not pay anything? Uh, or, you know, if, if there's a return on it, it's a bit of a gamble a lot of the time. Um, how do you find the, the time and resources and attention to turn a, like a, something you're just passionate about into a sustainable project you can work on for multiple years? Um, I would say like, at least for me, it's the things that I can't stop thinking about. Like I have like a million potential project ideas that come across my brain and I put them all in like a notepad or like a text file, like straight on my desktop. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the ones that I keep coming back to maybe over the course of a year, even that, that I keep coming back to that I would actually start on because I realize, okay. So, uh, as a young photographer, what I would do is take my camera everywhere and shoot everything all the time. Like I'm going to dinner with my friends. I'm like taking pictures, whatever. Um, I still it's great. That. I mean, you learn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you, you learn a ton. Um, but in order for me to not burn out, I started going a different direction where I, I try to get the project done in my mind, like almost down to the picture. Like I have an idea, you know, something is interesting to me. I think about it over and over again. Um, and then I'm building the book in my mind even before I even take a picture to where I know how I want it to look, the direction I want to go. And then I start doing the logistics. Like how do I get to all the people I need to shoot or the events or whatever? It, it also, it's also because I have kids and I have no time. Um, if you have all of this stuff laid out, then you can just like knock it out. You know exactly where you need to be, who you need to shoot. The book's already done in your mind and you go do it. Um, and that's as an older photographer, I, I mean, I'm not that old, but that's kind of how my, ch- my thinking is a wiser photographer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's a, there's a photographer named Rodney Smith, um, who I really admire and he's had like a really consistent, solid style, like his whole career. I think he's shot almost everything on the same Hasselblad, like in black and white. I mean, 90% of his work done that way. And one thing I really admire is when I learned that he is totally happy not shooting most of the year. And that he only has like, you know, 12 or 16, like super important shoots that he does every year where all of it went into the planning and then he'll like go and shoot and just nail it. Like he's, it's already in his mind and he goes out and shoots it yep. and it's awesome. Consistently Yeah, I've awesome. seen his work before. And um, I, I totally agree. And, I think that this is, this is a much more inspiring way to, to approach creating ph- photos in my opinion. Like, I think that there's, there's obviously a place for the for the spontaneous moments. Sure. You know, so, so like, that, 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 that might be your bag. Like some people are that way. Like I think Ryan McGinley probably started that way. You know, it's like he has whatever camera and he's like running around with his friends naked, climbing trees, whatever, and he's shooting it. <laughs> and, you know, and he just like, you know, that it comes from his spontaneous work, but I don't know. My life's not that interesting. I mean, mine's like, <laughs> Yeah. changing, yeah, there, changing diapers and there's a different kinds of yeah. success. There's a lot of those photographers that have had the success of like being single forever <laughs> and, um, and not necessarily singleness, isn't it, but not focusing on a family life and being crazy yeah. involved in their work. It's not just photographers too. It's anybody in any industry, like the, the Steve Jobses of the world are obsessed and, you know, get really, really focused and don't sleep much. And 
don't do much else. Um, and it's almost a different, you need to aim for your goals a little differently to have, um, the kind of success that, well, I think each of like each of us, you know, has more of a family life and, uh, maybe finding a bit more of a balance. So if you don't plan, you can't make up for lack of planning by just staying up all night working every single day. You have to, oh, yeah. you have to make up by deciding to, to only do the things that are really worth doing and then executing really well. And like speaking to shooting, you know, 12, to 16 times a year, I find that even like if, if Anya and I are posting our, our shoots just a couple of months, people, everybody's still like, oh, you're really busy. Cause they're not, nobody's mm-hmm. paying that much attention to you. Right. Like they only check yeah. in on you once a month and they're like, oh, there's something new you're still, yeah. you're still busy. <laughs> you don't need to be well, posting every day or, or creating something new every single day. To, this to this is perception. something that I've been, it's been on my mind a little bit actually. So I'm glad you brought it up because like, I think that with photography, especially, you know, if you can find a way to monetize what you're doing, like you're lucky to begin with, mm-hmm. but like, it's the same, same with, you know, any, I don't care what you're doing. It's always the same. Quantity is never better than quality ever. Mm-mm. And, you know, like, I think that, you know, uh, there's just, there's a lot of, of just repetitiveness going on because people have this idea that, that quantity is the, is the key to being successful. So, you know, like I, for instance, you know, like I was just chatting with somebody earlier today about Instagram and, um, just how boring it's been lately. <laughs> totally, and, man. You know, and there's there's people that are I you can following me. On. Maybe that's the problem. No, I like your stuff. <laughs> no, but but you also you're not like a serial spammer. You know, like right. that's exactly what I'm talking about. Is that like there are people who are who are just consistently amazing, but like usually I see something from them like once every couple of days or weeks. You know, and then there are people who post all day long, and it's like every day it's it's familiar it you know you recognize it immediately yeah. and you're like yeah i've seen you do that a few times every day for the last year and i feel like there's just too much of that going on in general you know like we've almost hit this this point where like photography is so accessible to so many people that that the people don't have anything left to say you know until well, until they really like get introspective and 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 figure it out what it is that they care about or what they, how they want to communicate. Cause that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I think I, I agree entirely. Like, um, I think the thing that we've run out of actually is constraint, like, right. and focus and commitment. I mean, those, those words are like not popular. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I'll give you, I'll give the listeners a creative exercise that was really good for myself. So there's a movie called the five constraints. Um, it's about one filmmaker who's trying to get a, a depressed friend filmmaker back into filmmaking. And he says, I want you to remake your most famous film five times. And each time I'm going to give you some constraints. So one of them was like, you can only have, and the, it was like, one of the ones was, uh, you have to shoot the entire scene in an alley in India with a, with a clear backdrop so you can see all the people like just something crazy like that. Or you have to, you have to make it a cartoon Another one was you can only have 16 frames, then you have to have a cut. So 16 frames is like half a second or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and these constraints like reinvigorated this filmmaker and and it's just an amazing movie. I highly recommend seeing it. Is it called the five obstructions? I'm sorry. I'm I'm Googling uh, right now. The five obstructions. Sorry. Yeah, that's it. It's a Danish film. 
It's so good. Is, I, the, is I mean, this like related to the whole Lars von Trier? Um, what's the movement of like uh, Dogma? Yeah, the Dogma, Dogma ninety five or yeah, is it that yeah. vein of uh, films? Yes, the idea that you you create rules for yourself and these rules make you creative or they enable you mm-hmm. to be creative. Actually, speak, so the fact that you brought up Rage Against the Machine makes me think about this today because that was my all my ideas about like restraints as a tool come from. Uh, the guitar work of um, Tom Morello, where you know all he mm-hmm. had was a, a Stratocaster and a wah wah pedal in his amp with that, like you know, had some holes poked in it or something, and um, mm-hmm. like having almost no tools and then pushing that as far as you possibly can. I've always that's my default analogy for that, like that you can do more when you force yourself to to be you know boxed in a little, like yes work, work within this and then try to make it something. There's a phenomenon called the paralysis of choice. Um, it's when you present someone with too many options, the option they always choose is to do nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I use it actually with Mastin labs as like the reason that I, I focused completely on simplicity, for example, exactly why I support you so much. (laughs) Like like Um, the, where you're coming from it just, it speaks to my soul. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I could go on and on about. I'm I'm very about simplicity. Like, and it's it's the reason I like certain restaurants. You know, they have a fixed menu. You mm-hmm. walk in, and you're like, I know everything's gonna be good. I I prefer it over the restaurant that serves like Greek, Italian, and yeah, sushi. I hate diners. So, <laughs> so here's a here's an exercise you can do as a photographer. Um, pick like just write down on a piece of paper, like three constraints, three things, or even one. And then commit yourself to that for the next six months. I can do this. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll give you one that I did, that, and then I can tell you where the project is, and you can look at it. Okay. If you want. Um, so this was actually on kind of a. This was an, an example by doing. So I was telling another photographer about how, like, you know, you just need to give yourself a, a little box to work in, and then you'll be creative. And I said, I'll, I'll do one right now. I said. Uh, I see these totem poles like around Seattle that people pass by every day. They're kind of interesting to me. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So my constraints are that I'm going to shoot every single totem pole in a weird environment that I can find. The second is that it's always going to be um, Portra 400 on 645. And the third is that I always have to show it in an environment. So never like super close up and never way too far away, but just those three things. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, I'm going to do it for a year. So I went online and I just kept bugging people on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And anytime I taught a workshop or I spoke anywhere at the end of my speech, I would say, does anyone know if there's any totem poles here? Like no matter where I was in the world. Um, and then this turned into like, <laughs> yeah. Thing. And you know, what's funny is, is it started out as like a curiosity. Like, I don't even know why am I even really truly interested in this? And it became like an obsession. And now I've got like probably the best collection of, totem poles and weird environments like in the history of humankind. And now you have um, an excellent coffee book. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. You can just turn it into whatever you want. So yeah, I mean, do you think you could make a, a show out of this or a book or something? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Seattle would be the place for it. Um, but yeah, definitely. I actually added one last thing I wanted to do. And I wanted to find the history of each totem pole that I'd shot around the world so that I, again, like the, can, the concept of the book changed in my mind so that one page would be the story of the totem pole, maybe even told from the totem pole's perspective. <laughs> I don't know. It <laughs> sounds weird. 
Um, and then the, the other is like showing you where it's ended up. So I've got totem poles like in front of Fred Myers. I've got totem poles that have been stolen and put back that are in weird <laughs> places. Um, yeah, I've got totem poles that were made by, by Germans out of concrete from drawings that they saw that were not totally accurate, but they were it, it, like just really interesting stuff. I have totem poles that were, um, that I shot in Portland that were made to look like eight bit video game kind of stuff. Nice. And I'm trying to find the, the reason for it. Um, but anyway, yeah, so just you, uh, set a few, are, few constraints. So you can, are you also adding like text to these when you're, when you're yeah. like, if you're going to create a book or whatever? Yes. Yeah, so that, that's the one thing that changed after doing it and finding out that I, I really was obsessed and it was starting to look really nice together is I want, I want to find out the history of each one and put that on the opposite page, you know, even again, possibly told from the totem pole story or uh, viewpoint. Um, another quick constraint that I did was trying to shoot with point and shoot a, a, a point and shoot camera for an entire year. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's great because it really is like, Okay, it's going to pick the exposure. You have only a 35 millimeter, you know, angle of view, and what can you create within that? And I think even better would would be to pick one film. So I did Kodak Gold 200, mm -hmm. and I every time I went down to San Francisco, I go down there a lot. We have family there, and we'll stay sometimes for a few months. I would go out and shoot on the streets. I I would get a few days where I could go shoot that, and that also became a project uh, again on my personal website. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, long what? story I'm short, sorry. if can I, can I ask what camera it was? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, my favorite camera of all time, which is the, uh, Fuji class S. So it's a little, um, Japanese luxury point and shoot camera. Uh, okay. it's got a 30, 38 millimeter two eight lens. And as far as I know, it was the last like luxury camera made. It's really it's beautiful. And it's really thin. Like it, it feels too small to be a film camera almost. Which one? Yeah. And it's always with me. Always. Uh, the Fuji class S. No, I'm sorry. I was asking um, Tyler, which one he mentioned. The one he's talking about. Oh, that's the same one. Sorry. I, I just, yeah. He just heard you. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, when I, when I met Kirk in Seattle, he showed me this camera and uh, it's, it's when I started deciding I needed a nice point and shoot. I ended up with the context. Yeah. Too, oh, so this is, how, that's it, how all this started. Yeah. And that's really it's, beautiful. And it's really thin. Like it, it feels too small to be a film camera almost. Which one? Yeah. And it's always with me. Always. Uh, the Fuji class S. No, I'm sorry. I was asking um, Tyler, which one he mentioned. The one he's talking about. Oh, that's the same one. Sorry. I just, yeah. He heard you. Yeah, yeah. That um, when I when I met Kirk in Seattle, he showed me this camera, and uh, it's it's when I started deciding I needed a nice point and shoot. I ended up with the context. Yeah. Too, oh, so this is how, it, that's how all this started. Yeah, and that's how you that's how you got into it too. Yeah, that's how I ended You're, up with the Olympus oh, SA. Yes. That's because of the same reason. You, See what you've done. Yeah. <laughs> I know. See. And now, how many? See, isn't it rad to work within constraints? This? I don't know. Maybe hopefully a lot. Oh, there, there's already a run on them. Yeah. I, well, but I so mean, a I mean, isn't I, it, it? Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I was going to say for both of you, isn't it liberating actually to have that? I mean, isn't that like you're shooting it and you're like, yes, like, mm -hmm. oh, I love it. It's good. Yeah, I, I really, I, yeah. I really like it a lot. The, the difficulty is discovering like what it is that you really like to shoot with it. Um, yeah. 
Now, the, the constraint I've enjoyed the most was when I, um, when I was in, uh, when we were in Tokyo last year, I hadn't brought any film bodies with me. So I was forced into a constraint of like, well, I want to shoot some film here. I want to, uh, um, and yeah. so I bought some disposable cameras and that was like the most enjoyable. I, I re- like every yes. shot I took turned out really well because like I was thinking so hard. I'm like, I'm looking for, I know what a disposable camera can't do, which is a lot of things, but it can do a few things really well. Like everything's in focus. Um, well, it, yes. in quote, <laughs> blurry focus, um, you know, you need a lot of light. So like already, since you're looking for a lot of light, the colors end up being like pretty vivid. And I just found myself like every, uh, hour there's like, oh my God, that, that thing in front of me, that, that fits perfectly into what I should be shooting with a disposable camera. Cause I can't shoot anything else. So I'd run up to it and got really enthusiastic and I was really happy with the results afterwards. Um, I remember seeing them. They were actually like surprisingly good. Yeah. And I was forced into it. And yeah, honestly, I kind of like enjoyed that more than when I, a lot of the time when I'm shooting with the, the, the like the real film body, it was really fun. Um, and I should do it again. <laughs> yeah, man, that's awesome. And it's like, you're, you're in control. You're not like, just like loaded down with gear, you know, it's like, you're the boss, Mm -hmm. like you've got this camera and you're like, you're making it work. You know, um, I used to have way too much gear, especially when I would shoot weddings. And sometimes I'd feel like I'm, I'm a slave to Mm -hmm. all these choices and things I had. I'd be like, Oh shit, I got, I got the 20 millimeter on I'm too close or too far. And I've got to switch. I would miss like a kiss or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, luckily, luckily they would do it again, but I'd be like, do I really need every single possible focal range do i really and and i went back and i looked through all my work and i'm like 80 percent of my favorite work was like with a 50 mm-hmm. so i was like well duh uh and so i got i sold everything i had except for my 50 and a 35 i think and it's that a was really, like it can be a really inter- ago. <laughs> it can be a really interesting exercise to go back into your lightroom depending how you organize things so i put every year into one lightroom folder and you can look at all the metadata per year of like, wait, how many photos did you shoot on each lens that you own? And that can be a really helpful way yeah. to maybe decide what you want, what you want to pack next time. Um, what do you end up needing the most often? Oh yeah. I, I learned that I became a way stronger shooter when I devoted my time to figuring out the 50. I mean like, yeah. And, and by figuring out, I mean like feel it with your soul. Like I could look across a football field and know exactly within a foot where I needed to stand to shoot something with that lens, mm-hmm. you know? Um, whereas with the, you know, I had like a 17 to 40 and a 70 to 200 kind of like standard equipment for a wedding photographer. Um, and that would be like, okay, sometimes you're shooting at 32 millimeters and sometimes it's 40 and sometimes mm-hmm. it's 17 and you never understand what the voice of that lens is because you don't, you know, there's a definite feeling for me from a 50 compared to a 35. And that doesn't seem like even a big change, but I spent like, I don't know, literally nine years shooting mostly a a 50. And I now feel that I'm about ready to really start focusing on 35. Like I feel, I feel like, okay, I got the 50 kind of figured out. took me about almost 10 years to really feel like I know it. And now with a 35, you know, I've started focusing more on that. And man, even going from a 50 to a 35, I feel like it was like, whoa, way out of control. Like it's so wide. Like I don't even know what to yeah. do with all this space. Um, and now I'm starting to feel what what good pictures can look like in a 35 space. But I mean like, 
if you handed me a 28, I'd be like, what the fuck, what the hell do I do with this thing? You know, yeah. like I can see like behind me, it feels like, so you get so tuned into like one piece of gear if you commit to it that, you know, it's really good anyway. I think that, no, it's that. important. I think that, you know, usually when people ask me, you know, when, when they're just, you know, interested in getting started and they're, you know, like, well, what kind of camera, you know, like, should I get like a DSLR with a zoom? And I'm like, no, you know, like, <laughs> no. I'm like, if you want to get a DSLR, buy something really, really cheap and used off of Craigslist and get a 50 millimeter 1.8 and see if you like it, you know, start from there and see what happens. And like, yeah. It, once you think like I, I I think it's like a it's a marketing thing, right? Cuz like everybody feels like they're you know, when they're just starting, they're all like, "Ooh, I need a Zoom," right? And it's like, "Well, that's really backwards cuz, you know, like as far as I know, in most like uh class environments when people are teaching photography, they don't they don't say you need a Zoom. They say you start with a 50 and you learn how to take mm-hmm. photos with it. And then, you know, you move from there. Like I just yeah, it's interesting. Or you I, don't move from there, just keep learning. Yeah. <laughs> just keep using that 50. <clears throat> yeah, like I really yeah. wish that, that I had myself had done that because I, I think that I didn't really learn how to take great photos until I had started shooting primes. Yeah, totally. E- even that jump right there is like a huge, you know, change of thinking, like going from zooms to primes. Um, yeah, the whole the whole, I mean... I would be really worried if I was a camera manufacturer right now, um, a digital camera manufacturer because it's like, or a lens manufacturer, because it's like, there really is no need for anything else. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they must be struggling. They must be struggling so hard to like figure out a reason you need to change whatever to something else. Because I mean, honestly, like there's cameras now that are like 50 megapixels that are coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, the D800 was... 36 megapixels. Mm-hmm. Um, who the hell? I mean, like, less than well, 1% of the population needs that. You don't even need it for a billboard. Yeah, you don't. They were doing four megapixel pictures on billboards, like, in the early 2000s. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. Well, you just don't even um, need that kind of resolution. I mean, but what's going to be great about these cameras that are for 1% of the population is that they'll soon be a camera for every single one of us. That's how, I mean, I do yeah. see is that it, like a lot of people are laughing about the, the 50 megapixel 5D because it's not at all what they need. And I think there will be a lot of like consumer type people that'll be confused and think they need it and buy it and be disappointed. But there is yeah. a small percentage that are like, thank God, this is exactly mm-hmm. what I'm oh, yeah. dying for. Yeah. And I think yep. that's happening more and more. I mean, with like the way that, some of the brands are splitting things out. It, there, there's like going to be, you know, different levels of 5D, different levels of Sony's and everybody can just buy the one camera that meets exactly, exactly their needs. Hmm. Totally, totally. But, but, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, and I've heard this saying a million times now, and I don't, I think maybe it's making the rounds, but like the greatest pictures of all time were taken on cameras far less good than even a basic, you know, iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you go back in time and and it was really like with the limited tools that people had, you know, in the early, in the early film days, it was really just about like access. That's like where you did it. It was like, who can get access and get up close to whatever famous person, like, or some event, like get in there and get access. Cause you're, cause at the end of the day, it was like showing something to the rest of the world. 
like that they wouldn't have access to. And then being, being an artist while you're doing it. But I would even say access was even more important. It was like shoot F8 and be there. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, but now it seems like the whole industry is like, has really gotten people all jazzed up on corner sharpness and pixel density and ugh, <laughs> all this stuff. Like who flipping cares? I mean, seriously. I mean, like it's real fun. It's of course gear is really fun, but at the end of the day, it's like, what are you going to, what, what's your legacy? What are you going to say yeah. about the world? Like that's what He matters. was a great like, photographer. He had all the right gear. Yeah. I think that message has been getting out there though. I, I hear more people talking that way than I mm -hmm. used to. I used to see more of the DP review forum style, like fighting over, over pixels at a hundred percent. And now I see more people talking about uh, what we're saying right now of like, it's the photo that counts. Mm -hmm. To the point, actually, yeah. where sometimes I get people like annoyed at my tweets or things <laughs> because I'm talking about gear too much. They're like, you know, the gear doesn't make the photo. I'm like, well, I'd like to talk about it. And like, let's talk about both. Um, and <laughs> both I, are good. Both are good. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're moving right. towards like the conversation is happening on on both sides. Um, oh, yeah. Both both are good. And and the the hard thing about like, you know, I talk about like we need more planning and substance and like commitment and sacrifice, but like those things don't have any product attached to them. So they're not going to be like as prevalent in society, you know, like I can't sell a product that makes you more committed, um, you know, or whatever. So that just kind of has to come with, from I'm sure within. there's an app for that, but, uh. <laughs> I'll make a drug or something that's for mm -hmm. photographers to like really focus. I commit. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll I buy that. The I commit plugin, <laughs> the I project. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I still think. I mean, I think there is a change though. Like, I'm seeing more and more people talking about printing their work, about um, making books, about having shows together, or making like micro websites just for a project. And that like is really encouraging that, mm -hmm. that people are like, you know, kind of thinking about that. But I do, I, I'm like, I'm a serious optimist with how photography's gotten. Like there was a, because we also had this big hurdle to get over when digital happened. Like it had mm. to take yeah. some time for us to figure it out and to like get back into a new rhythm. And totally, it made sense to talk more about pixel peeping than because the pixels were terrible. <laughs> like yeah. for a few years, yeah. it did not look very good. So to obsess over every upgrade, like the, the, every upgrade really mattered. It's the same as like people that obsess. I mean, I obsess over iPhones. Uh, I like, I still habitually watch every single release keynote, but they've gotten a lot more boring <laughs> because we've kind of hit peak phone. Like mm -hmm. the phones are yes. just good enough now and the cameras peak, peak are phone. just good enough now. So yeah, yeah peak camera. We're, we've hit we've peak. Hit peak camera. Yeah. So we really have. We yeah, really so have. it's just not as interesting anymore because like yeah. the changes are more subtle and like there's less to talk about really. Um, yeah, which is good, and that means that we, you know we can mature in the in the art side of it. In the I mean, I think that when you have people yeah. like us who have you know spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on on the best gear as it becomes available for years. And when people like us yeah. all of a sudden start going on eBay to find like, like <laughs> the oldest cameras that they can find, to my bulk yeah, stock yeah. of uh, of disposable cameras, can I get a? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, it, it really this tells you something, you know. Because I mean, what happens when you know, like you're you're using a, you know, let's say you know a, a Nikon D eight hundred, and then you're processing it to look like a toy camera, you know, <laughs> yeah. like what does that really say? Because I mean, that's that's some stupid stupid thinking. In my opinion, 
you know, this, this, you have this thing that's, that's capable of, of creating, you know, like the clearest, best resolution files that you've ever seen. And yet, you know, like you're going to go and destroy it when yeah. alternatively you could go buy a Holga and make pictures with that, that you'd actually probably really enjoy. Oh yeah. And you wouldn't have had to like make, you know, some really lame choices along the way. Can we yeah. also just take a minute to talk about, to switch gears a bit, to talk about the, um, the actual pre-production of a specific shoot. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, do, do you, uh, and not just, uh, we've already been here a while, so we won't spend too long on it. Cause it's, well, cause it's <laughs> less interesting to, to me, do. I guess. But yeah. Do you guys <laughs> do, um, do you, do you do a lot of pre-planning for a shoot and like kind of, how do you approach it? Yes. Tell me about it. Yes. <laughs> was do you want to go first? Do you want to go first, Cameron? Why don't you go first? You're the guest. It's more interesting. <laughs> okay. So the the two kinds of shoots that I pre-plan, like that aren't like five-year projects, would be either um, a styled shoot, say for an engagement, um, or a stock shoot where you know have a very specific look I'm going after. Um, in both cases, like you can't leave anything to chance. So th- th- this goes into like, you've already done it in your mind. Like, I can't stress how important it is to visualize before you even do anything to plan a shoot. Just just think about it. Like, really visualize like what's going to be good and try to translate that into logistics for getting a shoot together. Um, so for, enga- I'll just do engagement ones first. So what really turned around my wedding career in a way was taking control rather than just getting what I get. Um, and when a couple wanted to do an engagement session, the first thing we would do would be to brainstorm. You know, we would have like, uh, you know, we'd go on a Pinterest to make a board and I would throw together like all the, the clothes and the setting and everything that I felt would really work with that couple in particular. So I, I would take something that they're already interested in, for example, like hiking. And I got, uh, you know, a bunch of Filson gear together for them and they got the other clothes together and we met at like, um, Rattlesnake Ridge. It's very popular these days on the internet. Um, <laughs> but that's just right, right. Yeah. On the, on the Instagrams. Um, it's a beautiful place, but yeah, we, we met there and it's like a place where like, if the water's low, you can see these huge, like old growth stumps, like jutting out of the water. And there's a beautiful trail that like overlooks the mountains and everything was planned around like a feeling that I, I wanted for this shoot. And from that shoot, not only did I get photos that could be for stock because it was planned really well, but I mean, it was for an engagement. And when you plan an engagement at that level, which isn't really even that much more work, you're going to enjoy it more. You know, it's going to get published. There's no doubt. So whatever you spend to get a few, a few props together or whatever, you couldn't buy that in advertising. I mean, like that would be hundreds or thousands of dollars in advertising. So it's going to be published. It has multiple uses. It's more fun to shoot. The couple thinks you're badass, mm-hmm. right? Because you you care at this level to like make something amazing, and it just works out. So that that was like a turning point for me for weddings. Um, and and the key thing is that they actually have to be getting engaged. So mm-hmm. one thing I know about wedding publications is that if they're not a real couple, it's very hard to get published. It's like the last thing that these magazines and blogs want anymore. But it's oh, totally. it's a super simple problem. It's a super simple problem to solve, though, because you just make every couple's experience amazing and at that level, and it's a real engagement. So that's what I've been doing. Um, and for a stock shoot, I 
I usually take something I'm already obsessed about and try to make it, try to kind of kill two or three birds with one stone. So kind of the last thing I was really shooting was uh, sea kayakers, like around Seattle and like on, out on the coast. I just think it's a really beautiful sport against like the Pacific Northwest. And so um, I collaborated with another photographer to do a sunrise shoot at Alki Beach right across right across from Seattle because you can see the entire city lit up on the other side. And so we organized to have a diver so we could get some shots of like a diver like getting ready to dive like at sunrise with the city behind him um, and made sure we had everything for that part. And then as soon as the sun had come up and we'd finished the diver part, we had two people that had sea kayaks that were all geared up and ready to go. And then we had them like paddle around and I got in the water with a wetsuit um, and shot a bunch of stuff on medium format, like on film. Oh, um, nice. So, yeah. That sounds so, really cool. Yeah, it was like hella fun. And it's like two shoots in one. And it's for personal work and, and uh, stock. So... I'm going to add a, a, a kind of counterpoint to the, to the pre-production thing. So, I mean, I agree with you on a lot of points, but I got to, I also want to be a little devil's, devil's advocate that I've seen, what I've seen happen in um, maybe less experienced shooters is that they'll walk into a shoot with um, something very specific in mind. Like they anticipated that this is what it's going to look like. This is the photo that I'm looking for. Yeah. And I'm going to be completely blind to anything else that could be happening in front of me because I have I'm looking for this shot. Mm-hmm. So like I've seen them like make models feel extremely uncomfortable because they're, you know, asking them to, to be just completely unnatural to like the way they would act on their own or, or, yeah. or, or try to make them pe- be people that they're not um, or uh, just wasting time. Um, you know, like wasting time setting up the strobe they were dreaming of when the sun is perfect over here or like just being so attached to the idea they had before they came that they aren't able to adapt to like the amazing potential that's happening right in front of their face. Mm -hmm. Um, and I see it so often. Another one, like this drives me crazy when people take my photo because I'm not, I'm not comfortable having my photo taken. Like I feel very awkward every moment (laughs) as many people do. Like I, I think it's a good exercise just to keep you humble when you're speaking to models. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. So I, when people say like, can you, you know, uh, like, look this way and look off majestically and I do it and I'm focusing, I'm trying to like do the thing and they take one shot and start staring at the back of their camera. And I'm like, uh, I am still standing here feeling very uncomfortable. Can you please yeah. just take some That's photos? why you shoot film. Yeah. Shoot film me. Don't chimp. Yeah. 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 yeah well tell them that. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you know, I, I, I hope you know what I understand what I'm saying. Like you can't, you also can't let the pre production get in the way of just just getting the shot or getting the job done. Um, yes, absolutely. Well. Yeah. And I, I think that that is actually a great part for me to take off. Cause, um, I believe in, in pre-visualization and, and, you know, trying to get like your head around the concept before you go into shooting. I also will create, um, inspiration boards or, you know, to, to get a general feeling of how I want a, a shoot to go. Um, I think that the, uh, the difference in, in the way that I do it. And I think that a lot of other people do it. And I think this is probably some good advice is that like 
you should only get an inspiration for the feeling of of the of the subjects that you're that you're getting ready to shoot rather than looking at the at the actual photos as visual inspiration like you don't want mm-hmm. to look at it and say like i want to create that photo i have some genius advice i'm coming up with in my head right now uh, uh-huh. that you should choose one thing that is one or two things that are what you need to capture about it, especially like, you know, you pulled all these inspiration pieces and you're like, it's the expression or it's the lighting or it's Mm -hmm. the, you know, it's these like one or two elements and that is what I need to get out of it and let the rest change if it needs to. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's exactly the the danger is because if you, if you say it's this expression, but then that the person that you're working with isn't capable of that expression naturally. Well, then, then you chose the wrong one thing. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that the wrong thing is, is looking for something specific. I think that you're, you're looking for a general mm-hmm. feeling as opposed to a specific expression. Yeah. yeah you know, and yeah, so yeah, then you right. have to, and then you have to look for it within the person or the, the subject that you're working with. So mm-hmm. you want to, you want to try to like, you know, bring out the best qualities of whatever your subject is. You know, so that's why I think it's it's a good idea to pre-visualize the shoot before you go into it and think about the ways that you want to capture it. Try to, you know, it's always a good idea to like study whatever mm-hmm. your subject is. Like if it's a person, then talk to them, find out what they're interested in and find out what they're good at, you know, and then see if like you can incorporate some of those ideas into your shoot so it feels more natural when you're shooting with them. Um, mm-hmm. And don't don't be hyper-concerned about like nailing it exactly the way it is in your mind because you know a lot of times i find that when you're on a shoot it is actually it's it's just like this huge problem that you need to solve you know and so the whole time yeah exactly and so you have some some ideas about like a a general direction that you want it to go in but you know if you try to to make it a perfect thing and you're not like you know really experienced in doing that um, you know, like, you know, it's not, you know, it's really difficult to conceive and then plan, execute like a Gregory Crudson photo, for instance, you know, yeah. like that, that's going to take like probably a month, um, maybe even more, who knows. And then, you know, everything has to come together absolutely perfectly. And like, that's, that's something to aspire to, I think. But like, you know, I think that when you're on, you know, on a regular shoot and you're planning it and you're executing it, you have to be willing and ready to think on your toes and change your mind. I have another yeah. side of this that we, that this, this part, what we just said doesn't necessarily apply to a lot of this is about assuming that the planning is with the people a lot, which it is mm-hmm. often, but there's another type of shoot that you can be doing that is much, if it's a very technical shoot, if you are doing like complicated um, lighting like, you know, a big, say a big commercial shoot and a big interior where you can't just use the natural light and you're going to relight it yourself yeah. or a really precise Dan Winter style studio headshot with, you know, six lights doing yeah. specific things. Or like, if you really need to worry about the technical side of it, which sometimes that is the case, that needs pre-production. You should have tested the lighting setup and you should know how you're going to like, you know, how many stands need, how many sandbags and that you've got all of the clamps that you're going to require. And like everything should be ready for that kind of a mm-hmm. shoot. Um, mm-hmm. or, or if there's a lot of wardrobe involved, like if it's about clothes, if you're doing a fashion shoot, you need the stylist to be very prepared and that you've communicated with what's going to happen. If you've got makeup, like if you start getting technical, um, 
in in all sorts of meanings of the word, like in in different elements of the the photo, then you have to prepare. Then it's not it's not optional anymore. Like um, it's more than just working with the people. You've got to have a call sheet and make sure people are getting fed and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's sort of like a different a different thing. But um, there's I don't know. I'm just remembering that there are are more ways you can get bogged down in, in, in pre-planning. Do, do, do either of you ever, ever work with a producer? Yeah. Well, like so the way I kind of always am shooting now, so Anya and I work together on most shoots and she is more in the producer role. So a lot of the time she's making awesome. all the calls ahead of time and arranging the hair and makeup and, and um, that allows us to do a lot better things mm-hmm. um, when we're able to do it that way. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really recommend it. Yeah. I'm, I'm learning now only, you know, almost 20 years in that a producer is like super valuable. Mm-hmm. Like, my God, you can get so much more done and, and have it like work out really well. Um, oh, no question. When you have someone taking care of that stuff. Um, yeah. And it was almost actually hard letting go. Like you're so used to as a photographer, like, wearing every single hat at the same time. You know, it's hard letting go, but then afterwards it feels really good. <laughs> and and yeah. then sometimes it can be hard going back. Like, oh, yeah. uh, I have to do all of that work again this time. Last time <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was a, a lot easier when I could focus on w- one element of it, like whatever part I'm, I'm taking in the shoot. So yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, um, let's, let's ask Kirk what, uh, what you're into this week that may or may not have to do with photography. What's, um, <laughs> what's getting you excited? What am I excited about? Um, I'll give you two things actually. Yes. For one, uh, one is that we're just getting down the path of making an iPhone app, uh, Aye. to get just, Oh, sweet. That's really exciting. You heard it here <laughs> <laughs> to get a really nice, clean, accurate film look. Um, and it's again going to be about just absolute simplicity. So that's the hardest part of making it, but that's a fun process. And then the, uh, the second thing I'm into is there's an artist named, uh, Jared Stockdale who's in uh, Seattle that I kind of recently discovered and he makes the most amazing art, um, where it's like native American graphic design, but it'll be of like, I don't know. I've got one of like a bicycle but it looks like a totem. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's like a totem pole bicycle, but they're beautiful. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I've always really loved native American culture and art already, but this is like super modern. I highly recommend checking it out. That sounds cool. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. The next piece I'm going to buy is of a telephone, like an old fashioned telephone that looks like a, like native, you know, native American art. And then, uh, there's one that's like a gun shooting bullets and another one that's like a toothbrush and toothpaste. Cool. Um, but they're super awesome. They're very modern and really old at the same time. That's what I'm into. That's Those awesome. Things. I'm going to also, yeah. th- and it's kind of too late. I should have said this at the beginning. I know I'm interrupting everybody and it's because of lag in my connection and I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not, trying, that sort I'm not trying to be a jerk. I just <laughs> can't hear you until 30 seconds after you said it. <laughs> I'm doing perfection the best I can with it though. Yeah. That, that's what kick, that's what QuickTime is for. Is you can like sort <laughs> yeah. it out in the edit. Maybe nobody will notice in the edit. Uh, we'll see yeah. how much time <laughs> I have to edit. Uh, what about you, Cameron? You got anything cool? Uh, cool? I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe guilty pleasure. Um, 
my 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 mother was telling me about this uh, TV show that I needed to, to get caught up on, and and uh, you know I, I started watching it, and at first it was just like, wow, this is all just like violence and and silly shit, and then um, you know like a week later I realized that I was like binge watching three seasons of this show. It's called Banshee. It's on Cinemax, and like I've heard of this. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's funny because it's like typically this type of show doesn't really get me. And uh, I I just got absolutely like sucked in. And now like, you know, I, I'm all caught up. And um now I, I I realized last night that I went to try to go watch another episode, but I was caught up and so there wasn't anything to watch. And I was actually disappointed. I was actually mm. sitting there going like, Well God, what am I gonna do with my night? <laughs> All I know about this is the posters, which have some, like, are very nicely designed. Are and, they? Uh, yes. Yeah, I haven't seen anything for it. Huh, I haven't, yeah. I don't know if I've seen the posters. I, uh, you know, the, like, I actually, I knew, I knew nothing, heard nothing, had no connection to this. And suddenly my mother was like, no, I think you'd like it. And then, you know, like, you know how we are with our mothers, you know, we just assume that anything that they think we would like, we're probably not going to. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, like I, I kind of went into it thinking like, yeah, what's this? And sure, you know, I mean, like as it is for the amount of like gratuitous violence and sex and everything that's in this show, like typically that that kind of stuff just, you know, it can be good in, in doses. But like when it's like a formulaic part of the show, like it, it tends to let me down. And uh, this show just has enough good content. That, that that stuff just I think that that's what just keeps it on a pay channel as opposed to being on a cable channel. That's that's why mm. you want to watch it on Cinemax and not on, you know, like light or TBS or something like that. We should bring your mom on for recommendations next time. Yeah, yes. no doubt. My mom's pretty cool, man. She listens to cool music. And, Sounds cool. Hmm. Yeah. Do I have something? I think I have something. Let me yes. try to remember. It was on my phone. I'm going to look at it. Oh, right. I'm going to recommend some apps today. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, the first one has nothing to do with anything. It's a snowboarding game called Alto, uh, Alto's huh. Adventure. And it's beautiful art. It's beautiful gameplay. It's, I don't, I don't play a lot of games on my phone. So if I'm recommending one, it's exceptional. Like nothing keeps my attention game wise on the phone. And this one totally has. So, huh. uh, I've loved that. Another thing that's happening, it seems, it seems to be happening right now as we record this week. Uh, Meerkat came out. Have you guys played with this yet? Uh-uh. I've never even heard of it. It may not even exist by the time this recording comes out because, you know, splash in the pan. So it's uh, on Twitter. You basically create live streams of whatever's happening. It's like inst- 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 insta-casting your life. Um, <laughs> and I wanted what? to do it for the show. So what, what I thought it'd be great for, the only problem is I wouldn't hear your guys' microphones. So I need to find a way to do this. But like you just kind of hit a button and you're sending a stream out to your Twitter audience and all their uh-huh. comments and responses all go through Twitter. So the reason it's been blowing up, like it's real, it's growing really fast. In just a few days, I'm seeing it everywhere, uh-huh. um, is because your whole community, they see your tweet and then anybody who's watching it and comments, they are tweeting out about it. And like these things just instantly mm. grow really fast. It's really fun. I wonder, I, like I wonder if this is a play against Snapchat. Kind of. It's a yellow icon. It looks, it's right below my Snapchat icon <laughs> on, on, on my phone. I swear, man. Extremely similar. I bet it's a little, I bet it's an inside Twitter attempt at killing sure, Snapchat. I am, um, <laughs> I've liked it more than Snapchat though. Uh, oh man. 
Uh, let's say about Snapchat, but oh, not here. <laughs> wait, wait, but I have one more. I have one actual useful for photographers recommendation as well. Uh, that's called Flick, F-L-I-C. And it's uh, basically a way to like purge your phone because I end up with so many iPhone photos and uh, it just kind of presents them all as a stack and you just flick left or right, whether you want to keep or delete them. So, huh. you know, if you've been doing like batch, like shooting, you know, a dozen of almost the same photo, which is what ends up filling my phone, you just like toss things to the left and right of what you want to keep. Oh, that's so cool. that's um, like, that's like hot or not for your, your totally. images. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> so like make a, make a quick judgment. And Tinder, also, Tinder for your images. <laughs> <laughs> And I try to back up everything. I try to like save my phone to my to Lightroom actually, like so that I treat my iPhone photos like regular photos. Mm-hmm. So I'm not permanently deleting most of this, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a good way to just purge. And then your your iPhone collection of photos is much more interesting if it's mostly good. <laughs> if you're not oh, holding yeah. on to everything ever, so yeah. Mm. I, I'm an all in favor of like constantly editing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so maybe that's, that's it. Cool. That's the challenge for our generation is like, no, is no, uh, yeah. filtering and curating stuff. Cause there's way too much content. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to so. clean up our hard drives this week. And it's <laughs> so intimidating and so painful. I try, I tried I that in January. I, I, I got a little bit of work done, but like I realized that, this is the, exactly the kind of thing that you need two weeks of nothing else to accomplish. Oh, yeah. Like, you need to be focused for a lot of hours at a time mm-hmm. to oh. really do a good job. And it's of it. painful. Mm-hmm. It's so painful. And yet um, it's the kind of job that you can't hire out. No. Can I, can I give one? Uh, I want to coattail on one thing here. So have <laughs> you heard of an app? Have you, ever, have you heard of an app called Chatbooks? No. What is it? Let me, let me Google this. Okay. So what it does is it, it's a service where it will take the last 60 images you posted on Instagram and make a book out of it and ship it to you automatically. And I oh, think they're like six, six bucks. Dollars. Hey, yeah. Six bucks. That is like the best thing ever because I know, and you know, and we all know that we don't print anything anymore, unfortunately. And we're always mm-hmm. saying, Oh, we got to print. And you know, what if there's an EMP and all the data is gone or what? Okay. That's just me. <laughs> I know. Um, no, that's me too. I, I'm all about the wrapping my computer in tinfoil. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I subscribe to this and it's like, just set it and forget it. And it's the most amazing thing. I mean, it's so nice to have a printed, um, record of your, your life. You, you have a chance, it'll give you a warning. It's like, we're about to ship a book and you go in and like deselect images that you don't want in it, but I love them. Chat That's books. Great. It seems like a good excuse to, to be more selective with what you put on your feed. Oh yeah. You know, it's cause awesome. then if, if you're going to get, you know, a book and then you're looking at it and you're like, wait, why did I even take that shot? Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. It's a yeah. Reminder. Yeah. yeah. My kids love them though. I mean, it's like my personal feed. So like I've got a four year old and a one year old and they love to look at them like right when we get them and you, you can order them for like your parents or for your friends or whatever. I don't know. I wish I they paid me to say that. Right now. Uh, yeah. well, thanks. Thanks a lot for joining us and um, hopefully we'll see you again sometime, Kirk. Yes. Anytime. Awesome. Let's do it. All right.